What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, what are you doing over there? Well, you know, it's a brave new world, apparently. So there's plenty of indoor activities for everybody. Yeah. yeah. I'm just busy at my home right now, Skyping you in between my uh, online lessons with people. Yeah, that's good. I've seen that you've started to change your platform a little bit because we can't go off and do our overseas seminars or local seminars or even catch up with friends and colleagues in the park. We can actually change that to online. So there's plenty of uh, dog training opportunities for people. They mm. can get in touch with us online. But you know what else they should do in this time of uh, difficulty and isolation? What's that? Stockpile dog training equipment. Wouldn't that and be crazy? In- yeah, if they're in Australia, they can get that equipment from Einswick Dog Quip. And if they're in North America, they could get it from Canine Dynamics. What about if they need some tasty treats for their dogs? Well, if they need tasty treats for their dogs, the best place to get that is from Bright's Bites. So they can visit our friend Mark LaPointe, the Ferminator up in Queensland, and Kylie, who's in Victoria. Absolutely. Yeah. May as well stockpile dog equipment while you're stockpiling toilet paper. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> So before we wind this ridiculous ad up, tell our people how they can find you if they're looking for you for online consultations. Yeah, you can go to my website. It's operantk9.com.au. There's a training tab and there's the book a session. You can do that there. I'm doing them over Zoom now. It's really cool. We can share screens and we can talk and mm. I'm really happy with it. Yeah, How about perfect. you? Are you doing that? Yeah, I'm doing a few consults. I've started doing a few. I've been approached to do a few more. So people can either contact me directly and we can set something up or they can contact my team. I've got Kana and Twisty and Tegan from Canine Evolution. They're doing online consults. And while you're still allowed to, they're doing the social distancing of one-on-one consults if people are are well and they're presenting okay. So they're going through all the correct procedures with that. And we're still doing all our daycare at Pet Resorts Australia. Perfect. Yeah, there's plenty of options for people in a crisis. There's plenty of people around the world offering great services and great techniques. So take advantage of it while you can. Yeah, get on it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Clint Cook. Practicing social distance as always. We are a microphone boom length apart. We're 1.5 meters apart. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Almost exactly. Almost exactly. Yeah, it is. Yep. Yeah, that's good. What's going on? Well, there's a lot of restrictions coming to places everybody knows. Mm-hmm. We're getting told, well, in Australia, let me speak from Australia's behalf. I know a little bit about what's happening around the world. You probably do as well. Mm -hmm. In Australia, restrictions are coming up higher and higher. Mm -hmm. So we've gone literally from, I think, a level one up to about level three. I don't think they've officially called it a level three. However, the restrictions are coming further and further into place where they've basically said you can go from groups of 10 people now only to groups of two. That means that you can still go outside and exercise, but you've got to be no more than two people at a time unless you're immediate family. Yeah, same household. Same household. So, you know, it's you and the kids, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, which was a good law for the the rule of two. So if women are walking alone, they've got the protection of a companion. Mm-hmm. 
they're walking at night or walking in the park or whatever they're trying to do, there's a lot of restrictions that are coming into place. I can only imagine that they're going to get more and more extreme mm-hmm. as whatever happens is happening. It's happening all around the world. I was watching the 60 Minutes program the other night or snippets of it and they were primarily saying that, you know, because we're coming into our winter here that we're more or less going to see the epicentre of it. So without being an alarmist, I don't know. No one knows. Again, you know, these are things that are uncharted territory. There's a lot of internet experts that are talking about how this is going to happen and that's going to happen. I don't know. All I'm doing, all we're doing, all the community is doing is acting on best information that the government is giving us at that time. However, from our aspect, we're dog people. Yeah. We're people who are involved in the industry of training and owning dogs and educating dogs and their owners. So this is an interesting time for us because Mm -hmm. we can't physically get together. Mm -hmm. And that's a large part of our role in the community is, you know, traveling around or having people travel to us. I mean, it's affected you and your business where you've had seminars, Mm -hmm. we've had seminars, they've all been canceled. We all know that it's happened to everybody all around the world. Like our, our whole infrastructure of what we're doing as a business. I mean, it's happened to everyone, horse riders, horse trainers, the whole lot. Yeah. You know, we, we get it. The thing is, is we've still got to educate these dogs. Yeah, so I think we've spoken a lot about the big picture stuff Mm. and how that affects, but now today we can get back to dog training and talk about like the micro picture of like individual dogs. Mm. What can the fuck can we do with them in this time? Exactly. Yeah. There's been some videos of you playing with your son, Rip, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because although they're cute and I love them and I think people are really enjoying the comedy that you've put into it, Mm. there's also a very, very important aspect of what you're actually doing is because your son is in the epicenter himself of a a critical period of development. Mm -hmm. You know, like he needs stimulation, like really he's a little kid that needs to go out and play and go out and experience the world and play with kids. His brain is still developing at such a rapid rate you know he's learning to speak better coordinate better Mm -hmm. do a whole heap of stuff and you and jane are teaching him things that he can still do like you said to me the other day you know at the moment i'm being full-time dad i'm educating my son because he's going out of his mind not being able to play Mm -hmm. but he can play he can play with you and you know like you're teaching him valuable skills and the whole point about what i'm trying to get around to here is People have still bought puppies during this time. Yeah. So they're in the critical period of development and we're in lockdown. So, you know, one of our one of our biggest pushes on the show is if you're going to get dogs, you need to make sure that they're socialized well, that they have access to the environment. And that's going to be very limiting now. So this is where people are going to need to be very creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a little bit, right? And I think in most parts of the world, you're still allowed out to walk dogs, right? Yeah, currently. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be surprised if that, changes anywhere with people listening to us yeah so one of the things i thought was really interesting is like when you go out to walk these dogs say like you're allowed your one time out Mm. is then you're not going to be meeting with groups of people obviously so you're going to need to socialize your puppy habituate your puppies to the presence of other people and that normal people like people are around all the time and they're just a thing that happens not good not bad just a a part of life right that's just a regular part of life Mm. But you're kind of stuck in this position, right? Because what I was thinking was, imagine you have a puppy and you go out once a day, you're home the rest of the time, you go take that puppy out. Well, now you've got the issue of you're never apart from that puppy. Yep. And so it's a what I was kind of thinking, what I would do if I were in that position at the moment is I would probably be only taking the puppy out kind of every second day and I would be going out minus the puppy. Yes. Because you've got to play the, the balancing act between yep. creating a separation anxiety issues mm. 
Because if during the critical period your puppy is with you 24-7 and if you're work from home or whatever, then you're going to have a real trouble when it comes back to separating from that dog. That's right. And so like I think it's very important that people continue to practice normal life as much as possible, replicate that with the dog as much as possible. And, you know, that involves a crate training and that kind of stuff. But to us, it can feel like, oh, I put the dog in the crate and I put it in the living room and I'm in my office. And so we have separation. And yeah, that's a good step. You've got to do that, but it's not leaving the house. That's right. And the dog really will notice a difference in that. So you've got to find- And they can smell you too. Yeah, they know you're there, Mm. right? And so I think it would be a little bit of a balancing act between- like we're getting you out, we're being socialized and we're taking every opportunity that we can to habituate you to the environment in mm. which you'll live when all this is over, but also habituating to the idea that I'm going to go back to work at some point. Exactly. And you're going to be a dog at home alone and that's part of your life and you have to get used to that. But I also think that's a big part of adult dogs as well, right? Because I think uh, you got to continue to do that with your adult dogs as much as possible. Well, you're changing the platform. That's right. Mm. And like I've, I've experienced- And kids, children will be going through this as well. Yeah. Like Rip will go through it. Oh, 100%. Mm. I'm, that's a big concern. Yeah. But I've experienced this with my own adult dogs when, say when Rip was first born and uh, I just left the army, like I got out of the army two weeks after he was born, right? Mm. And so for that kind of first six months, I was home almost all the time. Yep. And the only work that I was doing was dog work, right? And it was mostly sort of aggression, rehab, behavior, consultation stuff. And so I'd take my dogs with me. So I inadvertently in that time created a little bit of separation anxiety with Valerie was never an issue with it. That's just her sort of her personality. She, Mm. but my Mally that I had at the time, Ryder, he developed like not separation anxiety, but certainly barking when no one was home because there was months and months and months where that wasn't the case. There was someone home all the time and he was always with everyone. And then he developed sort of a barking behavior. And when you change the status quo, it's, it's noticed. Yeah. And Mm. I had no idea about that until Mm. the neighbors told me, right. Cause he wasn't a destructive dog or anything like that. Like, Oh, that phase in his life, trust me, he went through some destructing earlier, (laughs) but uh, at that phase of his life, he was, you know, older and was knew the rules of the house, but was barking like crazy when we were, when we were gone and it was totally created by me. Like I'm totally aware of that. And so that was a good experience to have gone through to know like, Hmm, even when I am going to be home, I need to create the situations that feels as normal to the dogs as possible. So my dogs now are still getting put in the crate. They still get put in the car we, you know, like we have separation times from, I should explain, I use my car as a bit of a kennel because like I have a van that has kennels inside of it. You do. And so it's a place where my dogs get put and they're parked in an underground garage, but it really creates separation. Like they're, they're totally away. They're totally apart from me. Yep. And I think it's important that people remember to do that. The socialization is mm. a big part and we can talk about a lot of that, but I think that's really important. You remember to keep time apart. Yeah. Right? So that it's not such a huge impact to your dog when they come back to it. And that's not an aspect that a lot of people would have considered because they, I think there's people looking at the upside of it going, oh, yeah, now I can spend, spend more time, time with my dog. dog yeah. Unawares that they're actually creating problems for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think that's sage advice. One of the things that I used to do, I'm sure I've talked about it here. If not, I'm going to talk about it now just in smaller detail, is that with all my puppies, I take them down to a park or a you know, a place off site. Mm-hmm. I back tie them to a tree or a post or wherever I am in a park. I take a chair and a book and I sit down there and I just read while the pup goes absolutely bananas tied to a tree. Mm-hmm. Now, people have challenged me on this in the past and said, you know, why would you do that? I'm doing it for the exact same reasons that you're talking about now. I'm trying to create extinction of 
you know, like trying to control me or, or feel the need to be around me all the time. So once the pup calms down, the minute it calms down, you know, as soon as I get some peace from the pup, it stops barking and fretting about being away from me. I reward the dog or mark the dog. If it's market trained at that point in time, go back and, and let the pup off the lead, just run around and play. Mm-hmm. So after a period of time, I've got a puppy that understands that being away from me is not a terrible thing. When you're talking about future-proofing your dog, this has incredible benefits when you're talking about doing downstays, sit stays, any stationary position because the dog doesn't think I have to be with you. I have to be by your side. Yeah. The dog is thinking, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, I understand this and and no harm's going to come to me. In fact, if, if I practice a little quiet and patience, I'm actually going to get rewarded for it. So it's going to be a good thing. So yeah, you have to go through that extinction process. The dog will bark. The dog will become very uncertain. It'll go through some confusion. It's just a coaching session, yeah. but it's a beneficial one, as I said, that helps guide the dog gently into the, well, not gently, I guess it's chaos for a small portion of time. But for that small portion of time, the benefits of this is you don't have a puppy that shits itself in the laundry at night and goes completely bananas. Like they start realizing it's okay. You're going to come back. The thing that gets the rewards for me is my silence. Mm. Like that gets me plenty of access to coming out. And, you know, like- in the past, what I've done, if if I can hear them in the laundry that they're awake while I've gone up to go to the toilet or anything like that, or wherever they were, crated or whatever, if they're patiently in there, if I've got up to go to the toilet, I'll let the pup out. I'll have a little play session with the pup. Not all the time, but some of the times. Mm-hmm. I'll let them up, take them out, toilet them, have a bit of a play session, put them back to bed, job done right. Yeah. And that way, I've got a nice, stable platform of a puppy that it realises Barking and screaming never gets me what I want. Yeah. And you've got to coach through those things. That brings up a couple of things. Something I've been meaning to talk about on the podcast for a while, and this is probably a good segue into it, although I want to talk about my doorbell thing. Yeah, because there's been some questions about that. Yeah, and it's relevant to now, right? Yeah. But one thing, remind me to come back around to it, is I want to talk about the difference between sort of a handler-dependent dog versus an independent dog. Yeah. And an inwardly focused dog versus an outwardly focused dog and how they're different things, but people kind of think they're the same. But just on what you were saying there, you know, I have this thing we've spoken about in episodes back. And for people that listen to every show, they'll know what we're talking about. But I use a, a slightly different method for crate training than what is the usual. Mm. And I think that at the moment, if you're stuck in your home, this might be a handy thing to use. So, you know, because I've had, you know, a lot of puppies come through the house and I have a house like that. Like it's, I live in a tiny townhouse, right? So it's, I don't have kennels down the back like I have kennels that my dogs can watch the tv with me from within their kennels I live in this tiny house so and people would see like the photos that I put up of me and my dogs it's like it's always in that same room that's the room of the house that's all there is right you know the traditional method of crate training everybody who's listening to this kind of knows right you put the, the dog goes in the crate and you know you can't you will get more of what you reinforce and the reinforcement is coming out of the crate, mm-hmm. right? And so if the puppy is barking, carrying on, and you let them out, then of course that's what you're, exactly. you're going to get more of and they know, yeah. aha, I know that's the path to come out. So traditional idea is that we just wait till they're calm. Mm. And when they're calm in the crate, that's when you can let them out. And that works great. But the thing that I found was an issue with that is that you have a schedule, right? And especially like if it's not your puppy, if it's someone else's and you're, you know, you've got six of these things and you're on a training schedule with all of them and you're bored and trains or whatever, they have to come out when they're coming out, right? Like that's like, this is the window. This is the two hours I have allocated for training all these dogs and they've got to come out on on the schedule that they're on. The problem then can be, 
you need the puppy to come out because it's time, but at that time he's carrying on like an asshole, right? especially if he just saw his brother or, you know, the other other dogs that you have coming yeah, out. Yeah, it's hard he's to get the variability to, there. Yeah, he's beginning mm. to anticipate it yep. and he can then see. So the technique I had was I have doorbells from Bunnings, which is like Lowe's in America, right? You can buy, they're $10 and yep. they've got eight different chimes. Yep. And so I have those and every dog gets a new chime. And what's cool about it is there's a couple of things. The first is like, you know, we're dealing in hope when we're dealing in that kind of crate training. And what we want to do, like, well, all dog training is dealing in hope. And into behaviors we want to see more of, we want there to be hope, right? Yeah. And in behaviors we'd never want to see again, we want there to be no hope. Mm. So what I want to show the dog is that there's no hope. That's a good way of describing it for people who are- Yeah. Yeah. I want no hope that something you do can get you brought out of Mm. this crate. Right. I want you to under, I want you hopeless. Yeah. And just chill out and relax in there knowing nothing you do can get you brought out. And that's what gets you the chilled out dog in the crate. Yeah. Right. So one of the problems I face or we face with like when you teach the dog being quiet gets you brought out Mm. is that if there is an emergency situation and say the dog is sick and doesn't want to, you know, have diarrhea in the crate or whatever, those dogs who have been convinced the path to getting out of the crate is sitting there quietly doing nothing will continue sitting there quietly doing nothing yep. with more intensity when they're about to have explosive diarrhea, all mm-hmm. right? And the, they then won't give you any warning. I like to maintain that ability for the dog to have like an emergency panic button, right? Yep. And I believe the dog when it goes ballistic, like if one of my dogs suddenly goes ballistic in the crate, I immediately let him out because that's never been reinforced uh, many times in the past, mm-hmm. right? And so there's, I believe them when they're telling me there's a yeah, problem. Yeah, for sure. Right? So in line with that, that's why I like this doorbell. And so the thing about it is that it doesn't matter what the dog is doing, right? The dog could be barking. He could be asleep. He could be fucking spinning around in circles. It doesn't matter so long as it's not consistent, Yeah. right? And so if the dog is- It's a random schedule. Yeah, whatever mm. he's doing, the only thing that reliably predicts him coming out of his crate or his kennel or whatever yep. is this doorbell going off. Yeah. And so we take away their hope completely that they are in control of getting out, yep. right? And then, like I say, when you do have a panic moment, you'll see the dog actually in panic and he, he doesn't think in that moment being quiet will get me out. Mm. He panics really and then you know, shit, I should let you out, right? So I think that's a really cool thing to keep in mind. Uh, we've spoken about it in the past and I tend to, when I'm teaching, try to explain that to people because I've had a heap of success with it. Mm. And it means, you know, of course you still get whinging, crying dogs in the crate to start with, but I've had more success in speeding that up. Yep. But also it makes my life easier because, say, one thing I do have in my place, I have like an underground storeroom mm-hmm. that I call the crying room. Yeah. Right? And so when I get <laughs> new puppies in there and there. Yep. But it used to be in the past that, you know, my normal schedule with a, an eight-week-old puppy is like I cut off their water at, say, 7 p.m., no more water after 7. They get their, like, final toileting. I put them in bed at 9 o'clock. Uh, and about 1 o'clock I get up, I go and let them out again. I let them drink again. Then they go back into the crate. And then at about 5.30, 6 o'clock, I let them back out. And that's my usual schedule for avoiding them toileting in the crate and becoming yep. accepting it, right? But what used to worry me in the past was I'd go down to my crying room and I could hear crying from outside. Mm-hmm. And th- I can't tell you how many times I've sat in my garage waiting for this puppy to stop crying so that I don't reinforce it. Yep. And then you're kind of stuck in this middle picture where you're like, shit, maybe he's crying because he does need to come out. Maybe that's the reason he's crying in the middle of the night is he doesn't want to toilet in his crate. 
now I'm stuck in the position of do I build the bad habit of toiling in the crate or do I build the bad habit of thinking crying can get you brought out, right? Mm. And you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Whereas what I found with this doorbell is that it announces you coming out of the mm. crate. So from the other side of the door in this crying room, the dog has no idea that I'm on the other side of it. I can hit the bell and out he comes, yep. right? And so what the only thing that reliably predicts his freedom from the crate is that doorbell going off. And I've had great success in doing that. And it's not something you're stuck with forever. Like, it, you know, my both my dogs now know. They're chilled out in the yeah, house. You know, whenever they need to be in the crate, they can be. It's no problem, right? Mm. In fact, you know, Remy's crate is left open. Like, it's largely a lot of the time it, the door of it is open and he comes and goes from there as much as he likes. He's got a really nice bed in there that he sometimes sleep on. And Well, uh, they just understand that it's a great place to be. It's not yeah. a punishment cycle to be in there. Yeah. And it's effectively segueing back to my earlier conversation. That's why I used to do the tree, well, I still do the tree thing, because I want the dog to see me sitting there totally relaxed, totally calm, and the dog can't control me through its behaviour. I decide when the dog is going to get off the chain. Yeah. And I, I love your doorbell system. I think that's, especially now, while people have got time on their hands to, to execute it properly, yeah. I think it's a it's a very well thought out and a very pragmatic approach to giving dogs an idea of getting out of the crate. And I also appreciate that point that you just said before about having dogs being able to indicate to you, yeah. you know, I, ne- I really need to get out of here. I need a, I need a shit. Yeah. Yeah. I had that with Valerie one night. I would, she, she sleeps, she free roams now. She does whatever she wants, right? But uh, one night she was in the crate back when she was and I woke to this like screeching. I thought someone was murdering her, Yeah. right? So I go running downstairs and she's like just screaming in the crate. I flicked the door open and there was a couch between her and the door the door to the crate I flicked open and the back door where she would go outside, there's a couch in between and she cleared it like just (laughs) flew over the top of this couch and just made it outside before she just sprayed diarrhea everywhere. Yeah. Right. So I think it's important to have that up your sleeve where the dog can be like, Hey, this is actually an emergency. I need to get out of here. Yeah. Well, that comes down to something that I borrowed from Socrates, which is know thy dog. Yeah. And that's a principal component. If you're, calling yourself a dog person, if you're immersive in any form of dog training, you really need to understand your dog better. And I mean, scent detection trainers know this intimately. This is a behavior that you've got to get used to because you've got to see what your dog is doing and how the behavior is changing around scent. It's the same thing you're talking about, the dog being in a crate. Like you've got to understand there are times where the dog is saying to you, I really need to be out of here. Mm. And there's sometimes when the dog is in there and it's just been in there too long and the dog is going stir crazy albeit it shouldn't be controlling you all the time just through bad behavior because then the dog can think, well, that's the way of getting out of the crate, behaving like a lunatic. Whereas the randomization of the doorbell introduced intermittently, the dog goes, well, I don't know what the control mechanism is, but I do know that when I get that doorbell, that means that I get access to yeah, it. It's the and only it, thing that reliably predicts me coming out. Yeah. And that's fundamentally, I know you do the clicker acquisition differently, but in NDTF ways, when we're doing clicker acquisition, we have the dog through a range of behaviors. Like the mm-hmm. dog could be sitting, dropping, standing, spinning in circles, rolling around on the floor, over with somebody, you click, the dog gets its reward. Mm -hmm. So the dog starts realizing after a period of time, it's not for any specific behavior because it's not at the start. You know, when you're first introducing the clicker, and I know we do it differently, but you know, each method has merit, each method works. There's many roads that lead to Rome is effectively what I'm saying. But during that cycle, I, I like what you were talking about before, because it reminds me that the dog is not learning that any specific behavior controls the outcome yet but after time it'll start realizing okay the only thing that matters is getting that signal yeah Mm. yeah 
It's been a good method, and I like. I, I, think I like it. It's worked for me with many, many dogs, and so it's definitely something that if you're at home and you're trying to teach your dog or keep your dog at the position where they understand, like, hey, we have separate times, and nothing I do can change that. Yeah. Except you keep that sort of emergency up the dog's sleeve. Another thing that I think people really should be investing their time in now, obviously, is the box. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great one that you can do in the home. I think training with limited access, so like, you know, a lot of clubs can't train at the moment, Mm. right? You know, we're not training. You don't have access to other people, but you need to be able to continue to dog on a trajectory of Mm. improvement is training that box. You can do that 100% at home and you can create distractions. You can create environmental stresses that you 100% control and you can continue to keep strengthening, toughening your dog and keeping Mm. your dog on task and on focus. All those things, all the things that people know about it, this is a perfect time to be investing some time and effort into that for sure. Yeah. The other thing that I would be doing if I was like, you know, not able to go out with a dog, like I, you know, I've intentionally built my house as a dog training wonderland, right? So like my garage (laughs) is a dog training. And a kettlebell wonderland. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But so, yeah, just... Everybody that's got a slap meal at the moment is rubbing their hands together thinking. Like, I was just, I was yeah. about to say for those fortunate enough that you got a slap meal prior yeah. Corona tater time. Yeah. Which I saw that picture that Jane Yeah, drew. stand by with t-shirts coming. Yeah. If we can find anywhere to print them, Corona tater <laughs> t-shirts are coming. The logo, you wouldn't believe how cool. Oh, you saw it. Yeah, I saw it. Right. Yeah, you saw it. Yeah. Wait till everybody else sees the yeah. Corona tater picture. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. If you've got a slap meal, you're killing it. And, yep. and now's the time like- you wear you the, got so many so many skills that you can be working on on that slap mill yeah I, you know I, I we've got that whole patreon episode on the slap mill mm. what i was thinking of trying to do a little bit was sort of showing some of that practically because that episode is just us talking yeah uh, and we explain it all but for people who have one and want to i think overwhelmingly people use a slap mill just for exercise mm. and that's probably the last of all the things I use it for. That's the least of like, if we're drawing a pie chart of percentage use, that's probably the smallest piece of pie Yeah, is how much I use it for exercise. The I mean, the versatility of, of that bloody thing is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, so you just got to, I think there's a, you know, you got to be a little bit creative. I, I was thinking about m- making some video of that, but the only problem is, you know, I don't have a young dog to show in the steps. Like I, I, I kind of have this, I kind of despise tutorial videos where the dog knows the thing and people pretend like, oh, look, this is step one. And the dog knows it. And a lot of the times I've seen presenters do this as well, where they they just straight up lie about how many reps it took. And they say like, look, we'll teach it right here in six reps. And a really keen eye can see the dog's confused by the reduction in criteria where they go like, look, this is step one. And you can see the dog going like, hey, I know more than this. Why are you? Why are we going back why, to step one? Why are we one? backpedaling? Yeah. yeah, and it mm. takes a, a keen eye to to notice that. So that grinds my shit. So I will <laughs> I will have to sort of because I don't have another dog that I can show progressions with, and and both my dogs with the stuff that I do on the slap mill, they're at the end stage of the stuff that I'm doing. So I kind of have to then put them in a position to trick them into you know, a, a regression to show that, but I might try and get some content on that. I was, you know, I was doing some grip work stuff the other day and put up a little video. Like, is anybody interested in that? The good thing is at least you're being honest about it. Like you are telling people the truth. You're not playing the whole wizard of Oz fabrication of, you yeah. Know. Well, mate, that's why when we did the video series with Valerie, like that's why we got a dog and yep. did the whole thing with it. Cause it's all mm. real. You can see like, this is her when we picked her up at that's eight right. weeks old and this is her still got her like six years later. Yeah. Um, and because, I did that with Ladybug when I did the dancing bear thing yeah. on Patreon. I showed people 
all of the shitty work that was going on. I let them see everything. I let them see her falling off, me not marking, not actually reading her properly and, and not seeing the behavior I wanted. So, And I talked to people about it. Like I said, that was me not paying attention. I was looking at the wrong side of her body, et cetera, et cetera. So rather than them just seeing all the gloss, I wanted them to see how you shouldn't do things as well, like where you need to be mm-hmm. a little bit more invested in what's going on around you. And I think that's important. I think you really appreciate, and thanks for the feedback from people who have given me feedback over that as well. Like I appreciate people who have commented on that and have said that they've learned from my mistakes as well. But that's what I wanted people to see. I wanted people to see it raw and unedited without all the fluff, without, you know, like picking the best 10 seconds of an hour long clip. I wanted them to see, I make mistakes too. Because just about every single dog trainer I know on the planet while they're out on that field and they're swearing and cursing at their dog for not doing everything right. And then all of a sudden they get that golden, I call it the golden 10, Mm. you know, it's the 10 seconds of fucking perfect behavior where they go, hallelujah. And that's their cell clip. That's the clip. That's the clip. We got it. What people don't realize is I'm an overnight success, 30 years in the making, Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's the same thing with, with dog training. It's that I've gone through all of this pain, but they're not showing it. Whereas I do appreciate when I see people like you and Larry Crone and other people, and there's probably a, uh, a myriad of people I could mention, but they do actually show the pain they're going through along the way mm. and the things that the dog isn't doing so well. Because then you can say to people, okay, I'm not perfect either and my dog isn't perfect. None of us are perfect. But as a good trainer, as a great trainer, this is what you're looking for. This is the step in in the right direction where you can show the dog, okay, now you've earned your big payouts mm. through that golden 10. Yeah, 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 definitely. Slap me all time. Yeah. <laughs> get on it. Yeah, get on it. One, if you got one. But, but that would be a good – that would definitely be a good Patreon video. Yeah. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll start trying to work on some stuff for that. But, yeah, I think in your own home at the moment – so we're talking about the box, but I think now would be the time to start free shaping some stuff. Yeah. Because – the maths in people is that, you know, your brain accounts for 2% of your body mass, but 20% of your calories consumed, right? Yeah. And so a lot of the times we think, oh, like with my dog, I need – now, I presume dogs are similar maths, right, with their brain and calorie output, right? So people are like, I need to exercise my dog. My dog's getting enough exercise. He's going crazy. Well, you can wear a dog out pretty good Holy by shit, yeah. making him use his brain, mm. right? And, of course, there's going to be some – like the dog needs to do some physical stuff, right? Just like any person. But uh, now's the time to start playing those puzzle games and setting up – teaching your dog something that is not important, right? So that – you know, like what I would say of the shaping is sometimes people want to get straight to shaping, sit down, stand and roll over and, you know, whatever, like an actual completed behavior. But they're important. They're important things. They're foundation you, skills. Yeah, they're important mm. things that you want to go a particular way. So, yeah. of course, you can shape them and perhaps you should, but you want to do that in a very specific manner. This is time um, to teach complex skills. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Teaching your dog like the kind of shit of like pulling the tissue out of the well, – don't use tissues because they're hard to come by. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're currency now. Yeah. <laughs> Get a beer from the fridge, right? But use an uh, empty one. No, apparently we're going to run out of VB. Oh, uh, well, mm. worst things have probably happened. I know. <laughs> <laughs> There's a heaps of things. Like one of my staff members, Lauren Brand, who works for me, she's my senior person here at Dural. Mm-hmm. She's teaching her little Boston Terrier like complex skills. And one of the things he's doing in the office the other day was handstands. Yeah. The amazing thing is she's not a qualified dog trainer. She's never been through any dog training courses. 
she's just a pragmatic person that pays attention, Mm -hmm. um, goes online, watches how to do tricks, and she starts teaching her dogs how to do it. Yeah. So she was in the office the other day. I was talking to my manager, and Lauren's in the background teaching her dog to do handstands. And I'm going, that's fucking cool. Yeah. And she's going, oh, yeah, it's coming along really nice. But this is a great time to get invested in those things. As you said, you're not teaching the foundation skills which you're going to ruin later on when you're when you're trying to trial your dog or do things that matters you know the dog's not going to learn well now it's a wishy-washy way of doing it yeah. and i'm stuck in my skinner box doing it now i'm out in the field and i won't do it or won't do it the same way because you know there's been so much alteration to it yeah what i would say is like it's the kind of things that i call like the prank monkey stuff like it's just yes. stuff that's like fun to have for no reason prank monkey um and uh you want to get that name from uh, I went off at a guy one time. Did I tell you about that? No. No, we'll have to segue into that now. Well, this guy, I was training at the field one day. I was doing stuff and this guy comes over to me and he's just talking nonsense. And Old mate? Yeah, old mate. And yeah. he's like telling me how he, you know, what's a dog like that worth? I'll, I'll, I'll buy him off you right now for, I think he offered me three grand or something like that for <laughs> me. I was like, mate. She should have said, I'll give you a toenail clipping for that. And then he'd just been watching me train and I'd told the dog I was finished. And then he, uh, he comes over and he's talking to me and he's like, get him to do this. And I was like, no. And he's like, get him to do this and wanted him to do all this stuff. And I was like, no, I'm not doing any of that. He goes, but you just did it. And I go, I said, listen, mate, he's not your fucking prank monkey. He's mine. <laughs> <laughs> and I've told him that he's finished and I'm not, he's not here to entertain you. He is for entertainment of me. <laughs> right? yep. So he's not your prank monkey. He's mine. Um, but anyway, that's my prank monkey story. Uh, okay. But that's the first time I remember using it. Yeah. Uh, but the prank monkey stuff is what I'd say in the house is what you should be training the dogs because the point of the shaping at this time would be to confuse the dog, right? Yeah. Because you want him having to work through problems, like getting confused and having to work through it. Yeah. Um, and having simple targets like sit down, stand, that kind of stuff, right? That's where you're going to get more technical and you're going to, it's going to be hard on the dog because of the technicality that you want involved in it. Mm. But, you know, going out to the back, of your like if you have a place and you can send him from the upstairs to the downstairs to retrieve something to bring it back like just for fun or Mm. you know whatever like that like that's something that's going to take you a long time to chain those behaviors there's going to be a lot of training involved in that and you are going to like he's going to have to work through that and you'll you'll definitely benefit from them yeah like it creates synaptic pathways and changes neuroplasticity in the brain totally and when you're trying to introduce new skills your dog has a concept of how a learning platform all takes place. So it increases intelligence and builds the relationship between you and the dog and wears the dog out as well. I mean, all of that thinking combined with, you know, your limited physical capability. This is amazing. This is one of the things that people don't understand. Like a detection dog, for example, the amount of calories they burn. If you watch Tobias Gustafsson's new Facebook video that he put up yep. with his Labrador, you know, where he's not actually, he doesn't have a hide. He's just got the dog working. It's amazing because he's working the dog on an intermittent schedule and the dog is just going crazy, like backwards and forwards on all the bricks, like sniffing each and every little hole on it. But the amount of calories and the amount of energy that dog is wearing out just on doing that exercise alone is exponential. Mm. You know, like you could spend an hour in a park and 10 minutes doing that, and they would be the equivalent of each other. Yeah, totally. And mm. you know what has been interesting to me over the years I've been doing this is how many pet dog people are expert detection trainers oh, yeah. by accident. 
because yes. there's so many people who can tell their dog to find its toys, right? Yeah. And so it's like, you know, whether it's the dog's like Sookie toy, even myself used to do this with our old Border Collie, Ernie. Ernie mm. had this teddy bear that was like, it was legit. He loved that thing. It was his Sookie rag, yeah. right? And he'd, he'd play tug with you and all kinds of stuff. The second, if he had that teddy bear in his mouth and you tried to pull it, he'd out it straight away because he didn't want to risk damage to it, yeah. right? Like he knew like tug's dangerous. But we used to hide that thing and it stank, right? Because it was yeah. a dog Sookie toy. We'd hide that from him all the time and tell him to find it. And he'd happily search around the house and we used to laugh, like things that I know now why he would do things, but we had no idea back then, was he would look in all the normal hiding places before he used his nose. And we would laugh and be like, he's a different dog, like just look. But now I know like from science, like from stuff, especially the sort of things that we were talking about with Cameron Ford, like he's a dog strong in memory, right? Mm. So he would be like, okay. Last like, known place of success. Yeah, these are the places yep. I bit. So he would check mm. those things and then when they that, weren't- That's in intelligence other, though. Yeah, he was actually yeah. probably a very intelligent dog, yeah. right? But we didn't understand any of that. But you see this quite regularly, how mm. well people have trained a detection dog. And of course the, the odor that they're, they're searching for is their own toy and they're on a direct reward, hundred percent reward schedule, a direct 100% reward schedule. Cause they find their own toy when they find it. Mm. But that kind of stuff is, it's quite amazing how well people intuitively understand that. Or you just hide it a little bit at the start. Right. And then yep. you hide it a little bit more difficultly. And then you, you take it in a whole nother room and you see people who have dogs that really fucking love that game and their hunt is through the roof. And they right? work for hours on it. Yeah. And mm. you say to these people like, oh, that's actually just really good detection training. Like now all you'd have to do is like, if you want to do nose works, like you just pair the odor and you've got it. Like, because the hunt is the hard part to teach. And then they find difficulty in that. Like <laughs> then they, they overthink they can't that get the cross. part. Yeah, that's right. They overthink that part and overdo it and contaminate everything. And that's funny because you you reminded me of something. An NDTF student was coming into me and they showed me videos of their dog doing things. Yeah, you know, like just doing random skills and behaviors. And I'm thinking, oh, this is this person's actually you know a pretty good dog trainer. But as soon as you marry the science into it, you can just see their face falling away. Yeah, and I'm seeing. Like I had to actually sit them down and say, don't worry, you know, like what you're doing now is overthinking it. Like you're stepping into a realm of thinking, holy shit, I don't know how to train a dog. And I said, you just showed me 10 random clips of your dog doing behaviors. You know how to train dogs. Yeah. You just don't know how to actually put the academic side into the pragmatic side. And I said, that's all. And I said, continue doing what you're doing. I said, just learn the academic side separately. And then when it makes sense, I said, you'll see the trajectory hitting each other yeah. after a period of time. It'll come to a point where both will hit an apex and you'll go, holy shit, I, now I understand the scientific side. And I said, it's like people who can play an instrument but don't know how to read music. You know, and as soon as they start reading the music, they go, oh, shit, now, I, you know, it's going to take me forever to get my brain around reading and trying to play at the same time. And all of a sudden they go, oh, no, this is easy. It's funny in dog training, the things that people sort of think are the hard part is often sometimes the really easy part. Like in my example, they're talking about people who have taught their dog an amazing hunt, right? And yep. their hunt, like the dog through successive approximation, the dog will went from a dog who would hunt for 30 seconds mm. to now a dog who will hunt the house for an hour and he sniffs under every crevice trying to find his own toy. And then when you talk to those people about detection, oh, the scent tubes and all this and the odor, oh, how would he know that? Like that's the easy part. Like yeah. the actual the elementary the skill. Yeah, Any healthy dog can- yep. I'm doing that in Patreon this, yeah. this month. Yeah. So. so literally any healthy dog can be taught like this is the odor that you that brings success. Like hmm. the imprinting of the odor is the easy part, yeah. right? It's the willingness to go out and find that is the hard part. 
And that's what people like. It's interesting that people by accident, that's what they're the best at doing. Mm. <laughs> like having their dog, having their dog persistent. Like a lot of the times that the behavior problems that people, you get called into people's homes for, oh, if the toy goes under the couch, he tears the couch apart trying to get it out. And you're like, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> You've just built a prey monster. Yeah, 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 this is fantastic. And let me guess, the first time it went under there, he pawed at it for a few seconds and then like uh, you you got it out. And then the next like the next time he poured, you you went a little bit longer and you let him pour at it for a minute before you His eventually got it out. intensity rise. Yeah, and then you reinforced <laughs> by helping him out and that's built up over time. And yep. now a year and a half later, you've got me out here to try and help you out with it. While he's trying to borrow through the couch to get yeah. his toy. Like yeah. I know professionals that can't do as good Yeah, yeah, yeah right? they because they're in a rush. Built. They're in a rush. Well, everybody's in a rush and they overthink it, right? Yeah. Whereas it's the people who do it by accident are the best at it. Mm. I'd say accidental dog raisers are sometimes the best for building powerful dogs, but it's usually just in a way they don't, in a direction they don't want. If you could just then, well, I mean, and that's the beauty of it. That's why we have dog raisers and that sort of stuff who then we go, oh, thank you for building all that power and intensity. I'm now going to point that in the direction where I actually want it. Yep. And now this dog's my dream dog. Thank yep. you very much. Drive channeling. Mm, yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's good. It reminds me of stories that we've talked about before and I tell a lot of the NDTF guys this as well is that, you know, when people are worried about marker training, like introducing a marker, and I said, you've already done it with a dog lead. Yeah. And I said, I guarantee you if you own a dog – that you have pavlovingly conditioned that dog to understanding what a lead is and you'll have a powerful response to it as well. Yeah. And people go, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I said, it's amazing, isn't it? Like you never, ever thought about it until you've been bamboozled by the science now because you're hearing it and you're panicking about learning something new. And I said, but you've been doing it all along without even knowing that you've done it. Yeah. I said, all science did was observe and put a name to it. Yeah. Everything that we've learned, all the, the trendy words and the, the buzzwords that we're using now, it's all behaviours that have happened throughout time without any intervention with a human being before. But now we've just looked at it and thought, okay, let me utilise a scientific term so we can agree that there is a, a worldwide term that everybody can come to and saying, yes, that's it. But it happened regardless. Yeah, It's amazing. You know what my favourite is when you see people – down the dog park, they're calling their dog, Fido, 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 come, come. Like nothing's happening. Mm. And then they go, oh, I know what to bring back. And they get the treat bag out. And, rustle and they it. rustle the yeah. treat. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, why didn't you start there? Yeah. Right? Like, and then, and they'll, also, they'll always say, oh, he's the smartest dog around because uh, he knows that. And I'd say, well, let's say perhaps he's actually just conditioned. So intelligence doesn't play a part in it, but I will say he is smarter than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, like it's, there's so much really skillful dog training happening by accident. Right? Absolutely. And, and it's when you can then take control of that mm. without overthinking it. I do that. Like, that's why I'm not so, I don't enjoy detection so much because I overthink everything. And like, yeah, their obedience and the bite work kind of stuff, I, I have, can have a feel for it. But with the detection, I really overthink it. My, you know, we've spoken about this before, but I get panicky around the contamination part of it. It's like now at the moment. Like yeah. if I, if I were you, a germaphobe. But you do need to be. Yeah, but you, if I were a germaphobe, I'd be fucked at the moment. Yeah. Because just the kind of stuff like you go to wash your hands, well, you turn on the tap and then you wash your hands and then you turn off the tap, right? So you've just contaminated your hands again. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I know. it. There's a good video that I just sent out to all my staff about this whole germ experience. And it's, I think the guy's name is Jamie from the Mythbusters, the mm. redheaded guy. Yeah. And he's basically, what he's got is a little tube attached to the side of his nose, which is, 
putting out this luminescent goo mm-hmm. and he's touching his nose and then he's shaking people's hands and long story short, he's contaminating everything. He's inviting people around for dinner. So he's got people who are germphobes who are very conscious about, you know, not touching things and so forth and people who are, they really don't care. I'm going to send it out anyway because it's beneficial for- It's a YouTube clip or It's something. a YouTube clip. Yeah, put it in the group. I'll put it in the group and I'm also, I'm going to use it in conjunction with the Patreon video as well because it does show people how easy and how much contamination mm. goes on. And Gary Jackson, he did a clip on this a while with ago. Ink, right? Sorry? He did it with ink. He did it with ink, yeah. yeah. And what I was hoping to do pre this coronavirus thing was I was going to hire a smoke machine mm-hmm. and do a series of videos in the shed and everything to show people what the visual aspect of odor looks like, mm-hmm. you know, because I mean, it's like the tendrils of an octopus just spreading everywhere. And I was going to show how air current affects it. So our, it's it's like our visual range, you know, like we look into a room, we can't see the, the odor, but to a dog, it's nose actually describes it to the brain like we visually see it. Yeah. So they can actually walk into a room, even though it's it's olfaction and it's not visual, it's still very present to them immediately yeah. when we when, when they walk in there, when to us it's not. But when you see how much of an impact, you know, like a dirty environment has on the whole scent detection scheme, this is why I say to people, before you start, this has got to be a major consideration in what you're doing. And when you're doing it for games like Noseworks and so forth, you can get away with a little bit because at the end of the day, no one's going to die from your inadequacies in creating a clean environment. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing things like explosive detection and narcotics and you're going to court and you've got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that your dog is true to the odour, then you've got to have a clean environment. Yeah. And look, I'm going to spend time on Patreon going through that more, but certainly um, when people watch that video, they'll have a like a significant appreciation of your contamination in an odor scene. And also with this current COVID thing that's going on, you'll have an appreciation of why it's important to wash your hands and practice all the social distancing that the government's putting in place, because it really does paint a grim picture on both aspects, really, you yeah. know, like your lack of thought and lack of attention to detail on how that can have a major impact. Yeah. And I think like when I, when I talk about my resistance to that sort of detection stuff, it's just the way my brain works. I get spooled up around it and people say, oh, it doesn't matter. You get some contamination or whatever, and it still works. But like, you know, what most people who are messy and do contaminate, but still train dogs, right? So there's plenty of people who are messy and say, ah, oh, you know, blah, 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 it doesn't matter. And they yep. still pump out dogs that are trained. But the problem is those dogs don't indicate on trace elements because they're a mess. And so, yeah, and then the dog figures out like, okay, large volume of odour is yep. reinforcing and small volume of odour is not, right? Because well, well, they just don't know. Well, but that's what the dog ends up figuring out because you've mm. contaminated things with small volume of odour yep. and then only pay on the hides that are large volume of odour. That's right. And so people who are kind of messy and they say to me like, ah, what's it matter? Like it still works in the end. But I say no – because a bomb dog, like, and I can understand maybe with drugs, people don't want their dog indicating on trace elements because it's a pain in the ass to find. Well, it's trace no o- deal, elements right? can also be a distractor as well. You could sprinkle things in the carpet where the big hit is really where the money is. Yeah, but with bombs, like, trace element <laughs> yeah. is important because, yeah. like, that any amount is important. It is. Um, and so that's what kind of gets my gets in my head and I cycle around of that. And then I'm yep. like, did I touch this? Did I touch that? And my sequencing and. You're right. I mean, explosives are, are the zenith of it. Anyone yeah. who's training explosive detection, I mean, they've got to be, 
they're pretty much migrated to a scientist level. Yeah. They've gone to the top tier because they've got to be so fucking careful about what they're doing and how accurate the dog is. And I mean, it's it very much, as you said, it's very measurable. Yeah. And I mm. think, you know, what, what gets left out of the conversation in detection quite a lot is volume of the odor being important and showing the dog yep. like the indicator and all those sorts of things, because there's certainly people kind of know to work down Right, for mm. sure, they know to go to like yeah, small we, elements. We learned this with one of our bomb dogs once, but they they mm. forget to work up, yeah. and so the dog, like, if it's an overwhelming odor, so the dog yeah. could walk in. You know, you've got a, a hundred kilos of C four, which is what you would use if you were really going to blow a building up, yeah. right? You don't use a small amount, yeah. And the dog is overwhelmed with the odor and then doesn't know how to get to the source because he's like, it's fucking I've everywhere. I've never been rewarded on this before yeah, and ne- it's, but, it's yeah, just so changed the whole scent picture. That's right. This mm. is a whole nother thing. And so, and that's a very tricky thing for people who are in the industry and know this, like say, you know, as a, as a trainer, you're only allowed a certain volume of explosives. And, mm. and like, even as a operational handler, say in the police, they're only allowed a certain volume that they carry around for themselves. And so it's important, like training days have to look like if you're only allowed a, a kilo each, well, the six of you have to get your one kilo each together every now and again and show the dog what a six kilo hide looks like rather than the max being that one kilo hide. Yeah. And that's like some things it's, – it's interesting to see the different worlds on that in the dog world because to army guys, they're like, that's not even in their space because mm-hmm. they've got almost unlimited access, access to, yep. to huge amount of explosives, right? That was and funny when I went to the UAE. Like I went over there and in Australia – I've most likely mentioned this, but in Australia you've got to climb through so many levels of red tape to get access to things. Yeah. Like you've got to do courses and storage, which is fair enough. I respect that. It's yeah, not yeah. a problem. Civilians shouldn't have access to dangerous elements and chemicals like that. But when I was in the UAE, it was it was totally different. I was in a police compound with police, surrounded by police, you know, and they had lockdowns. But when I was getting access to some of the odors to do some training with the guys, I was expecting that, you know, I'd have to fill out forms and have to wait for a period of time and then get approval to do it. And the colonel over there at the time said, you know, what do you need? And I said, oh, C4. And he goes, yeah, when do you need it? And I said, when can I have it? And he goes, you tell me and I'll get it. And I said, are you serious? And he goes, yeah. I'm thinking, what's the catch here? And I said, do I need to sign anything? He said, no, I'll just get one of the guys to go and get it out of the compound for you. So he's gone off, brought back a container, and I'm thinking, how cool is this? Yeah. Like I can have immediate access to training aids, but if I was in Australia, like that would probably take me six months and then still be rejected to get it. Yeah. I remember you telling me that story the first time and I was like, so what? Yeah, I know, but you're an army guy. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. that's what it's like. So for us, like, when but, I was but I'm the, a civilian, so yeah. for me, it's a, it's different. Like, yeah, so that's what I mean. So yeah. for the guys who are in the army, like when I was a sniper platoon, you sergeant, have to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was a sniper platoon sergeant, and had the, like it's the platoon sergeant that have access to the what we call the magazine, right? Yeah. If you had been over and said, "Hey, can I get explosives?" and and I said, "How much do you want?" and you said, "A ton of C4," I'd be like, "Okay, I'm gonna have to get a truck. That's gonna be the hard part." Yeah, <laughs> not the not the ton of C four, right? Because I can just go down the magazine, and that stuff might be allocated to someone else, but we're not banging it. So, like, I can bring it up here for the That's day. That's actually no funny in itself that the truck is the the truck would have been difficult part. that would have required more forms. <laughs> Bang! I'm not joking either. That would have been like, oh, we had to find because I was not actually a sergeant. This is how stupid is this, right? Yeah, because I was not actually a sergeant. I was only a corporal, but I was just I was in the role of the platoon sergeant yep. to sign on the use of a vehicle, an actual sergeant has to do. 
right? right. So to get someone like when someone it's was a gonna, major inconvenience. Yeah, to, mm. when when one of my guys had to sign on to like be allowed to drive a car, you have to get like authorized by a sergeant to do it. Yeah. But because I was in the role of the platoon sergeant, I get all the access to the explosives that every like that's no problem. I get the access that a sergeant would have in those uh, times. Yeah. Right? But not the truck that it would. So that was the hard part. Literally. The truck getting it to you would be the hard part, not the, the explosive. I know I've told that story before and I've told it to other people outside of government agencies and they've kind of gone, oh, wow, you know, and yeah. I've, I told it to you once and I saw you just looking at me going, yeah, <laughs> cool story, bro. <laughs> and I, the first time I told you, I thought, oh, that didn't have much of an impact. And then I realised, oh, uh, yeah, Pat was a commando. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. You, that, you know, you have to be involved in that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, the, every, like most people, mornings that would be my job is go and get all the ammo for the guys yep. and turn up and sign it all out and mm. get it all ready. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But, but for me, that was an anomaly, yeah. you know, because when I was working for a private company doing explosive detection on the ports, you know, we were allowed to carry a certain amount of it, but it was small. Yeah. You know, like we only had, it was basically like sample sizes of each thing. Yeah. And the red tape and the everything that we had to cross in order to be able to use it was incredible. Mm. But like I said, I don't. It's got to be that. Way. I don't have an issue with that. Yeah, it's got to be that. I, way. It's got to be that way, and it's for the best. But it, it makes. I mean, to be talking about dogs again, it's the volume in hides that's important. People yes. forget that that's yes. important, and especially like as I was saying, when you're sloppy and you contaminate stuff, and the dog realizes, okay, I know there's a trace element there. I can smell it, yep. but there's no reinforcement for that yep. because you're messy and you've left trace elements everywhere. So the dog just goes, okay, well, that's not something that's important to me. That's it's right. like a, a bigger volume is what's important to me. That can be a problem because like a, a well-made IED is going to be sealed mm. and the only odor coming off of that is going to be the trace amounts that are on the outside that were got it during the manufacture process. Well, and to my limited knowledge in IEDs as well, I mean, you can use like a small one to bait you to a, an area where yeah, the larger course, one yeah. will hit you. Of course. You know, so, I mean, that's the consideration is just because you found one. We had an experience in that. We, we, uh, yeah, 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 you yeah. Did. yeah. We had an experience where we found, uh, in Afghanistan, I think it was in 2008 or something. Yeah. Found a, a borderline, it was a fairly obvious IED, like not well, particularly well laid in this compound. Yeah. So I was like, okay, yeah, no worries. We blow that. And then the obvious place to take cover was where the big, IED was and it was linked to the small one. So yeah. when we were going to blow the little one where we would be taking cover from that explosion Boom. was actually where the big explosion would be. And that's a really common technique, like yeah. really common technique. But the thing is, is people that are involved in acts of terrorism or warfare or even narcotics, these people aren't stupid people. No, that's You know, true, yeah. they're invested in either killing or in getting their drugs in. Yeah. Where business people have got think tanks on how to increase their business. This is their business. Yeah. This is what they think tank on. This is what they're educating each other on how to do. Yeah. So when you're in the top tiers, for the people who are in the top tiers, they've got to be on the same level as what these people are thinking. They've got to be thinking the same sort of thing. This is where they've got to be driving their dogs into is to say, well, you know, if I was going to bring down this building or if I was going to take out these group of people – how would I do it and where would I be and where would I create the most impact? Mm. I mean, you've got to search everywhere, obviously, and you've got to let the dog do its work unheeded. But you've also got to be thinking about, you know, like if I was going to do it. Or, yes, tactically, that's that's the point. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, they get you in the end anyway. No matter how ahead of it you try to think you are, you get done. I've had, trust me, I've. I, that's another topic for another time. Yeah. I've, yeah, well, you have to tell it one day. Yeah. Mm. I got blown up in, I can't remember where that was. 
long story, I don't know if it's for the podcast, but I was just outside the blast. They turned it on to hit the guy two back from me. It was my interpreter that they they hit. Yep. And the only reason I was that distance apart was because I was carrying a wounded girl. And I, like the four of us were carrying on a stretcher and we went down this little ravine thing mm. and it was just too hard to carry a stretcher. So I just carried her and by myself. And that's the only reason I was outside the blast zone. So I walked over it, the IED, but it wasn't turned on for me. They turned it on for the other guy. Wow. Anyway, that's another story. That's scary shit, isn't it? But so it? that's the thing, like, with, mm. with those explosives, like, that's that's why my head gets kind of – because a dog had walked over that, but he yep. wasn't told to search at that time. He wasn't searching. He was just walking. And so it's a case yeah, but he, of – he should have – Yeah, but, and, but it but was maybe also, it wasn't even interpreted from the handler. Well, but that's – he maybe indicated, and but also it was three mortar rounds that were buried about two metres deep. Right. right. So, like, you know, that – you'd want to talk about trace elements of anything that's, yep. like – so anyway, that's another story. Mike Suttle ha- had that happen to him as well. It happened. Like happen, he like, was due to come out here for his first ever seminar and only weeks before that he was blown through a doorway. Yeah. 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 That was a giant idea there. Yeah, it was a truck. Yeah. 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 Or, or a vehicle. It was a it was a vehicle at a stop, but it yeah, it incinerated most yeah. of his colleagues. It was a huge run on the compound. Yeah. Anyway, that's a different story. Mm. That's a different podcast. It's a different world. Like it's a different world for most of us who for you guys it's it's a Tuesday. For us, it's like, holy shit. Yeah. You know, that's just crazy stuff. Yeah. What's that? It's a plane. We're just not used to hearing them going around the sky at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, it's funny because I, I live- Yeah, you live just near the airport. Yeah, I Yeah, live- I've experienced that firsthand when yeah. when it felt like the roof was going to Well, that's my six o'clock head. alarm Yeah, because like, the airport opens at six o'clock. So like 5.57, I can hear- a plane flies straight overhead. And I've got to tell nothing. that story because when I was doing the silver school with Bart and um, I was, Pat said to me, oh, you can stay at my place. And um, Pat's got a, an upstairs loft area where it's, he's got his office and uh, like a spare bed and everything like that. So I stayed up there and I'm sitting in bed and I'm thinking, uh, you know, like I really want to get to sleep tonight because I know this is going to be intense and there's a lot of study involved and so forth. So I'm sitting in bed. And, you know, in that point where you're just about to get to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just in that nice sleepy state where you're just crossing over and you're feeling so peaceful. And then the next minute, <laughs> this fucking plane comes <laughs> roaring over the top. And all I can hear is like. Yeah, you don't like, want to touch it. Just, I, if, I, it scared the living shit out of me. Like yeah. I jumped out of bed and I've run to the window because I've never experienced a plane coming down over a building. Yeah. And like. Oh, obviously, you, Jane, and Rip were all just sleeping peacefully in your bed while yeah. I'm sitting there having heart palpitations because yeah. fucking plane. Yeah, especially yeah. if it's overcast and like an A380 comes over, like yeah. it just tears the house apart. Yeah, it was shaking. Like yeah. I could hear the windows reverbing and everything. Yeah. Like, But it just, any normal time, you'd go, oh, that's a plane flying overhead. But when you're in that nice... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was an experience. Yeah. Yeah. Hey... The other thing I wanted to talk about because we came to it before was talking about during these times of people mm. being in their homes, yep. the difference, because I hear people kind of use these words or describe the dog, a dog, and they use this kind of interoperably and they're two different things. The difference between a handler dependent dog versus yep. independent yep, and an inwardly focused dog versus outwardly focused. So the difference between the two, because I see people sort of discussing them as if they're the same. Now, let me use my dogs for an example. Mm. I would describe both my dogs as very independent. They're not handler dependent. They can be away from me very yep. comfortably. Yep. And I think when I would normally describe a, a handler dependent dog, 
that's where you get separation anxiety yes. issues, right? Mm-hmm. Because the dog needs you to be there. Now, if you look at the video I put onto the group the other day, just trying to be fun, um, you see I'm filming Val. Oh, Valerie running around in the park? Yeah, mm. and she is always sort of within – you know, 50 metres of me, she just kind of floats around. Yeah. Um, but, but she's she will, living her best life doing yeah, that. Yeah, she's just doing whatever she wants. But mm. if you see towards the end of the video, Remy just rocks up and he comes in from running like off camera, right? So yep. like God knows where he was. He, we're in a big off-leash area. He can go do whatever he wants, right? So he's an – in like I would definitely describe him as independent in that he's not scared of being on his own time ranging away from me. Right, so he I've just, witnessed that because I mean I've seen you run your dogs here. Yeah, he just goes does whatever he wants, mm. and when I leave him at home, he's totally fine with that. He like he the only time he would ever be destructive in the house is if he's bought like if he's under work and he's right? fine in the kennels too, yeah, which is a, another precursor or an indicator. Yeah, mm. so like. That's the difference. When when you get a handler-dependent dog, that's when the dog kind of tends to crumble without the presence of the handler and then, mm. like, stresses. And it really is just a stress-based thing. Yeah. We have indicators of dogs like that all the time. You can tell the caliber of, of a person's dog in the way they behave inside the kennels. Yeah. And yep. so there's a large portion of, like – there's a genetic component to that, but then that's a lifestyle component. That's the yep. mostly lifestyle created, I think, yeah. right? And that's what we're talking about now. People have to be careful not to flick the switch on that gene and mm. getting the dog to be really uh, dependent on them and not be able to, like, handle life. Yeah, because you can supercharge it. Yeah. Mm. And so that's the, the, the concern is that we don't want to create dogs that can't just live their normal life without the presence of their handler. Yeah, absolutely. So then what I would see is people who have then in working dogs or in when they're training dogs for whatever application, doesn't matter, people say, oh, your dog is handler dependent. And he may well be, but that's not a that's not a on the field issue. Handler dependence is lifestyle. Mm. The training part is then what I would then refer to as being inwardly focused. And what that means is like the dogs are only working, they're only doing the things we want of them in order to earn the reinforcer that we're going to pay them with, right? Yep. Until they eventually love the work. But an inwardly focused dog appears as though he's handler dependent. The truth is he may fucking hate his handler, right? He may despise his handler. It doesn't mm. matter. But he believes that the reinforcer can only come from the handler, Yep. right? And so without careful training, uh, you can limit the range that you get from an inwardly focused dog and Mm. their ability to perform behaviours away from the handler. This is why the triangle is an important aspect in training. Yeah, it's a big one, right? Mm. To show that the – and the use of like where – I had a good talk with Jerry Bradshaw the other day. It's probably out now. By the time this comes out, his one will probably be out. But about – like I like the click return back to controlled me. aggression for anybody who yeah. hasn't heard of it before who's yeah. joining us now. If you're not listening to his show, you should be absolutely, absolutely, be, especially right? if you're if you ever want to get involved in working dogs or just for the behavioural aspect of knowing drives and yeah, it's a it, excellent show. Yeah, so definitely listen to that, especially the one I'm on. Yeah, um, but what I dis- <laughs> <laughs> what I was discussing with him is. Largely in the system, I teaches that click and root come back to me. Yep. But there's a really strong function for the direct reward out ranging into the behavior, right? Because it shows the dog that the reinforcer can come from elsewhere. Mm. And certainly I've been guilty. Like I, I, I try not to create an inwardly focused dog. But in when you're just training obedience on the field, it can be difficult to avoid that, right? Yeah. Especially where it happened with Remy. See, Valerie's really, she's very outwardly focused. She can, her reinforcers come from all over the place. But what happened with Remy was when his teeth were busted and I was just training him with food because he couldn't bite the ball and that kind of stuff. Mm. Well, 
I was he developed a dependency. really yeah well so not a dependent so that they're handler dependent he's not but he's mm. inwardly focused because then he he bit developed a habit which was in not his critical period like we would say in sixteen weeks but he was going into a phase yeah so he was twelve months old when he broke yep. his teeth right. Mm. And so he was at a like teenage kind yeah. of years and all of his reinforcement was coming directly from me. Mm. Right. And so he's convinced that like it comes from me. Now that's great in some aspects. That's fantastic because we could do no bite work. So he couldn't find a hide behind something. He couldn't find a decoy around a corner and stuff like that. I had to send him around a corner and then click and he came back to me. Right. And so he developed a, an idea of like the reinforcers come from you. Therefore, I need to be within range of you. And it's taken me a long time. Like I think that he still largely thinks that mm. quite a lot because now as we're sort of progressing through PSA, he needs permission to bite. Like he can't just bite whenever he wants, like he can in the PDC. Like, so even to get to bite the decoy, I have to be able to tell him, mm. right, that he's allowed to do it. So he has become a little bit more inwardly focused than I would like because he knows he needs my permission to take the reinforcers, right? So he won't range beyond being able to get that permission because he knows there's no point, right? Yeah. So if I tell him to search, search means find, and then I'll tell you what to do after that. So if he's searching for a bad guy, because it could be a search to a guard or it could be search to a bite. Mm. So if I say search and bite, he will now, we're building on this, he will go and work independently, but if I just say search, he's like, there's no point searching any further than I can take commands from you because I don't know what to do after that, mm. right? Now, some people might look at that and say, oh, he's handler dependent. He's not. He could give two shits yep. about me. Yep. He just knows that the reinforcer is only allowed to come with my permission and therefore stays within range of getting that permission. Mm. And then, you know, in, in areas where it's much easier to train that, say, for example, on the send away, the send away for him is always an indirect reward. I'm carrying it and he runs away from me. And that motherfucker will run as far as I have, right? Like he'll run out of sight because he knows I'll call him back with a whistle and I have a very long range on the whistle. So he's happy to get to their max distance of the whistle, which we've never found, right? Like on a field where we have, like he'll always be able to hear the whistle. So I think... Those are different things. A, yep. a handler-dependent dog that doesn't know how to function without its handler mm. and a more inwardly focused dog who won't range beyond its understanding of where it can be reinforced mm. due to training. Yep. They're different things and I think that like – You've spent a long time thinking about this, haven't you? Oh, mate, I have because yeah, – I can uh, tell. Like you've really it, – it's almost like you're solving a maths puzzle. Yeah, well, because yeah. I know my dog in some cases like – because now, you know, as we're progressing, I'm teaching and building search stuff, mm. right? And I'm encountering challenges along the way and thinking, hmm, where did this come from? Yep. And it's not like it, – no one would observe my dog in his natural state and say that he's handler dependent. Like he's not he's at not. all. He yep. does his own thing, right? He, yep. He's his own man. But there, I'm encountering difficulties where I think, hmm, he, he won't range beyond his belief in getting the reinforcer. Yep. And so I'm having to change. To, what have I created here? Yeah. So mm. in some regards, in some activities, especially in the, like the search of the building and stuff like that, mm. I'm having to change to the direct reward where you find the decoy, you can bite him. Right. Um, but I don't want that to be nonstop. And this is, I think, you know, what I'm always kind of talking about is a strength in one place is a weakness somewhere else. So we yep. have very strong control. We have mm. a very, very good control of my dog. He does what he's told when he's told. But then that is a weakness in range because he, he doesn't want to leave the range of being able to be told what to do. Mm. And it's about now very slowly, incrementally showing him like you can reinforce yourself 
from the environment, yeah. but also keeping under control the idea that you still have to do what you're told, right? These are the fine balances too when you're talking about introducing defense when you've got a predatory driven dog. Yeah. You know, like it's a fine balancing act on getting that percentage level right. Yeah. The struggle is real. Yeah. Mm. So just as a practical example, because it's the one thing that where this is relevant to me, he's a sport dog. And so he's been trained with that in mind, right? Mm -hmm. In like in the building search, I now want him to search deeper into the buildings and I'm showing him that he can be cheeky. He can just do what he wants, find a decoy, just buy it. Right. But then I also have to maintain that control. Mm. And so there's a practicality aspect of finding a training location. This is why, you know, like people who have access to the good training locations don't so much encounter these issues. Yep. But it's now finding a training location where he can range beyond what he thinks is able to be reinforced, right? So he's willing to take a little bit more risk, but then find a way to layer the control over the top of that. Right. And so that's that ebb and flow. It's a mm. case of like, mm, I have to lose control of my dog a little bit and make Let it him be sloppy more, and then tighten it up. Yeah. Yep. Make him, make him more outwardly focused yep. lose some of the control work that I have. Yeah. Then try and keep the parts of that, that I like and inch forward my, my control to take control of it in a way that he still feels powerful and, and does his own thing. The old school way of describing that, which really, is applicable is contingency training. Mm -hmm. You know, like if behavior A happens, then behavior B will be an aspect of the occurrence of it happening as well. Like Mm -hmm. you'll gain in one area, but you'll sacrifice in another one. And that's, you know, like we talk about this when you're introducing new criteria as well. Like you have to loosen up the old criteria or one of the earlier criteria to build on the new criteria. Yeah. And then after that new criteria is developed, then you can go back and tighten up the old criteria. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of eggs up in the air at that point in time, yeah. you know, and you don't want to drop any of them, but you know, you have to realize that if you do drop one on the floor, it's, you've still got a lot of eggs up in the air still. And it just is a fine balancing act that you've, you've got to pay attention to the detail. Yeah. It's interesting. It's nice listening to you going through this, this puzzle because it really is a puzzle. It's like an equation that, you know, the answer is there but you've just got to make sure that you're not going so far out of your depth that you're just thinking, fuck it, you know, none of this matters, but it really does because Mm. it's part of the foundation that you're trying to layer into everything. Yeah, totally. And so I think those terms are not as interoperable as people use them. I think that a handler dependent dog is lifestyle yeah. and an inwardly point. focused dog is training. Yeah. Um, and of course, lifestyle is training and, you know, we can blur all that, right? That becomes another conversation. Mm. But I think that's the difference and the treatment is different, right? Yeah. Because like I say, my dog is not handler dependent, but he is somewhat inwardly focused. And the things that I'm doing to make him outwardly focused would not help with his independence if that were an issue, yeah. right? So it's about showing him where his advantage lies versus showing him how he can cope with life right mm. they're really different things and that the, the treatment protocol is different for both yeah and in some cases certainly with a lot of pet dogs you want them really inwardly focused right like you really want them always thinking everything good comes through you yeah right and then they're not going to range too the far distraction away from isn't you. isn't out there and yeah. the problems aren't being created by all the external yeah, you can stimulus mitigate a lot of issues mm. that might come because yep. of that right yep. um which is what we've been teaching Georgia and, and Laker. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 And so that's one of the funny things, like, because I will reinforce my dog in the obedience regularly with the environment, right? Like he, if, if there's anything that's creating conflict in my training, say 
It's always birds. Right? So <laughs> he loves chasing birds. He fucking loves it. Right? Funny enough, so does Valerie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where do you think that came from? Well, you know what? I thought it was genetic until- I think it's mimicry. You, what, sorry, I thought it was mimicry until he has siblings. That oh, they do, do it too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's- Probably that's, not with the intensity. Well, none of them are around anymore, but uh, when they were younger, they all did it. Right? Yeah. So, but certainly he's- learned it and he loves it and mm. what's funny about him is he's a total cur with chasing birds as well he has no intention to catch them yeah <laughs> right if they slow down too much he barks at them and yep. he's like hey you have to hurry up right he loves the game oh he just loves to chase them yeah anyway in the obedience he he's very able to be outwardly focused because i do regularly just say go chase birds yeah and he gets to just go do whatever he wants wherever he knows he like from anywhere i can tell him to do that like even in a long down that's often how I'll reinforce him because I can just yell at him to go from wherever he can just go do that. And so a lot of people, you know, people whose dog break from the long down, usually that's because they're an inwardly focused dog. They're like, I have to come to you to get reinforcement. And if you're not around, I need to go to where you are because you are the only provider of reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas that's not typically a problem I face because I can in that environment reinforce him from all over the place. But in the bite work is where I do have issues with that because I don't have the capacity to train that way often, mm. right? So showing him like you can go deep into that room and find reinforcement. And you can do it with food and you can do it with toys and all that kind of stuff, but it's not the same, yeah, right? That's you, right. Can, you can lay the foundation, which I've certainly done, mm. but it's not the same, right? You, yeah. This is what Greyhound races were talking to me about early in the day when the whole aspect of not being able to use pelts as mm-hmm. opposed to using, you know, artificial lures and even though I said, look, you know, this is an ethical and environmental thing that has to change, but the old school racers were saying to me, we're using skins, we're not using lives, you know, and I said, I know, but the problem is, is yeah. I, 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 we talked about this with Georgie and, and Jetta when they were on the show and so forth, but I understand that it's not the same. Yeah. For the dog, it's certainly not the same. Yeah, and I think certainly in the bite work, for sure, you can teach a bunch of skills mm. using the dog's toy or whatever, the search and all that kind of stuff. You can teach the skills, but you can't bring on the mindset so yeah. much because- the pupil dilation isn't there, the whole- Well, you know, there's no risk. The risk mm. of not finding the ball in the search, giving up, is that you don't get the ball. Yeah. And for a dog that's been developed properly, the, the risk of missing the decoy is you could get hurt because yeah. there is that element of like in the dog's mind, this is a me versus that guy. There has to be that to bring that the intensity. Dog, do you think the dog looks- at it from that aspect though i think like we analyze it that way but do you think that a dog that see a lot of dogs in training they don't really experience the aspect of the risk of getting hurt yeah i I think that a dog that has been like if they've been developed if they have been yeah yeah so they dogs of war absolutely that's why it's only there and and of course for to prepare them adequately for that they Mm. need to have experienced it in training so like i i say that about my own dog like he he will play with the ball very like he's almost relieved sometimes in the bite work when mm. he gets the ball and people say, Oh, you know, like you should be more serious about the bite work and say, so he's as serious as he needs to be, but that ball's never bashed him yep. and plenty of decoys have. Right. And so there's an element of like, while he likes to do both, there's an element of, if I get this wrong with the decoy, I'm at risk. Yep. Right. And that's the nature of preparing a dog for like the fight that will one day happen. Mm. Right. Whereas there's no risk with the ball. There's only like, it's Oh, relief. I could miss it. 
That's it. So I love biting it. Yep. I love biting the decoy. And if I'm unsuccessful and I, I turn my back on the ball, the ball just stays there laying on the floor and maybe I miss out on it, right? Mm-hmm. But if I turn my back on the decoy, then he could attack me. And now he's into like a heightened state of stress. And yep. the balancing act, of course, in training is to put it to the point where he is still willing to engage that. Like it's still, he's still doing it because he wants to, but in the back of his mind, there's the like, hmm, like this could this is potential to be dangerous for me. Like, and, and unfortunately I think that's a necessary evil. That's part of preparing a dog that mm. to, to potentially bite and, and receive that level of stress in the real world. This is the exact moment in time that it's a shame that we can't actually interview a dog. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm. Yeah. We're guessing how fascinating kind of would it be to be actually be able to have a conversation with a dog? You know, like I, I know this is anthropomorphic in itself, this whole conversation, this part, mm. but the reality is like if you could really sit down with a dog and like we're doing now and go back with a bit of an interview process and say, what were you thinking? Yeah. We summarize and I I think we get very close, but as you said before, you know, there are so many little nuances with this that you look at it and that's where the contingencies creep in. Mm. And this is where the, the difficulty happens. And, you know, speaking to Jerry Bradshaw a while ago when he was talking about, you know, bringing back the old school of introducing some d- defense into the work to make the dogs a little bit more serious so it's not all just prey monster work, yeah. especially for PSA-type work. This was a very old school method that we used to do a lot because, I mean, we weren't training for PSA, but we were training for private law enforcement. Yeah. So we needed our dogs to be real about it because we just couldn't risk going out on the street and your dog going, oh, you're not a guy with a padded suit, I don't, I don't want to do this. Yeah. We had to make sure the dogs thought, you're a guy standing in front of me, the order's being given, I'm going to take your leg off. Yeah, there is a big risk that we are anthropomorphizing this. But I, you know what? I heard Jordan but, Peterson But we say, have to a little bit, you know, yeah, I heard, because we have to summarise or try and draw a close enough conclusion right. to make it, make it sound. Jordan Peterson was talking about this in something I listened to a while ago. He was saying that, you know, and I agree with him, even though he's not an animal guy, but he was saying – it's probably usually usually safer to anthropomorphize something than to not because we're learning as the more and more we're learning about these mm. dogs, we're learning that they are, they do have a way bigger range of emotions than we originally thought. And yes. so it turns out that they probably do feel very similarly to us about many things. Mm. Um, now, like it's when well, you- Well, we only know what we know through modern science, right? Exactly. And, and we've echoed that yeah. through, through previous episodes. So the difference between, on this sort of part of the conversation, the difference between the ball and the decoy is to me the difference between the heavy bag and sparring. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Good. Because- Yeah, that's good. I yeah, like that. That's so, a very good conclusion. Like, because hmm. you can nail the heavy bag and you can get a good workout and loads of people will like it, yeah. right? And you'll have a good time. And but there's can, no danger in it. That's right. The yeah, bag there's, never going to no hit you back. And, and feet coming back at you. The bag's never going to hit you back. So the ex- the, the ex- exhilaration that comes from this could go wrong mm. you'll never get on the back right yeah. because you so you, it's exactly like the ball the dog nailing the ball right and the funny thing is there's a completely different element again from sparring to ring fighting yeah that's like right yeah, in, yeah exactly you know like it it changes the characteristics as you go up in tears yeah but mm. so my, this is why I think it's such a, a tight analogy because mm. you can hit that bag all day and it never is going to hit you back. Right? Can I just go back to the point, the stage that you're talking about or we're discussing, I don't believe is a dangerous misconception of anthropomorphism. It's utilizing it to try and analyze why and how could we do our jobs better yeah. and understand our dogs in a more appropriate sense. When you're using anthropomorphism in a dangerous aspect that just suits your wishy-washy lifestyle, that's where it becomes dangerous. Yeah, it's that's, when you give an inference as to why a dog might be doing something exactly. because of your emotional state exactly. rather than, than hypothesizing the emotional 100%. state of the dog. 
hundred percent. But so on my analogy there, I think that, cause this is something I do kind of think about a lot yeah. is that the ball to the dog, the gut, the tug game with the handler or whatever, mm. that is the heavy bag, right? Yeah. At worst you can miss out on it. And that would, you know, to some people, like if that's your workout, right, that would be a big loss. So that's I, a very I, good analogy. I like Yeah. It. I, I don't want to miss out on my opportunity to hit the heavy bag yep. and it's fun and I like it and I can fucking get a lot of anger out into that thing, yep. but it's still an inanimate object. There's right? no like, risk. Yeah. There's no risk that it could mm. go wrong. Then it's more exhilarating when I get into spa and I get to use the techniques that I learned on the heavy bag. I get yep. to get in there and in a controlled setting where I know I'm not going to get hurt because it's a friend or it's someone who I know this is how it's going to go. That's what's happening with the decoy, right? Yep. It's the dog's learning to spa. Mm. And we say to him like, hey, this is the technique you use. Oh, you used a bad one. Here's a here's some feedback to, to let you know. And that's where, where your mate who could put you on your ass yep. just gives you a little touch and goes like, hey, I could have I really hurt you there. And you go, yep. oh, yeah, got it. Like I understand. It's like, there's a little bit of negative feedback on that. And then on trial day, it's fight night. And that's right. It all goes into the fight. Yeah. And what you see in the human sense is there's a lot of people who taught, it's like people who have never sparred will tell you about the many fights they could have won. Yeah. Right? Or the guy yelling from the chair. Yeah. But Hit people there, turn this, do that's that. Right. But people who have been in plenty of spars and like, you know, like just from training myself, like I'm not a boxer, but you know, from time in the army and just from mucking around and people like anybody who has a brother at the same age of them is going to tell you they've sparred. Everyone's, right? everyone's sparred to a certain degree. Yeah. So people who've been in a fair amount of sparring know, fuck, like it only takes one wrong decision and you're getting put on the floor. Hmm. Right. And therefore are less likely to get themselves into fights. It's the people who get laid out in fights unprepared. They're the ones that never sparred because mm. they didn't know they didn't. First of all, they were unprepared for the fight. Yeah. And, and they, they don't understand the sensation of it. That's right. They're mm. not ready for that. So yeah. that's the progression for the dog. It's like the mm. ball and the toy is the heavy bag. Yeah. The decoy is the sparring partner. And yep. then like competition or in, if it's a sport dog or the real street fight is the actual fight for the dog. And you've got to have all three of those together because thinking you're going to go to one without mm. the, you can't remove any of those. Yep. You, you literally can't remove any of those, right? You've got to have the whole, all, the yep. whole progression. Yeah. It has um, to play out. And that's yeah. why I think with my own dog, when I observe him, because he's the, my biggest case study, I'm with him all the time. I think that the bite work has that greater sense of intensity because of the exhilaration of what could go wrong, mm. right? Like, yeah, it's a fight, but he can bite stuff hard and thrash around and fight when I'm holding it or when it's a spring pole or something like that. Like he can do all that, but the same intensity isn't there because there's no consequence of, of losing focus or yeah. concentration or making a mistake. When it's a decoy, there's that that's involved in it. So you can never truly replicate the two, mm. right? And- you know, again, and this is why I agree with you when you were, you used this inference a while ago where you said you can certainly do predatory work with your dog, but you can't do the defense work. Yeah, you can't finish a dog. Yeah, yeah you can't. There's no way. Yeah. Safely. You can. Well, you can, but you'll <laughs> but get fucked you, up by you your sh- dog in the wrong time. You it, during a stressful yeah. moment, that's when you're definitely due to getting a mouthful of teeth in your ass. Yeah, and so that's why actually at the moment I'm having such difficulty with doing bite work with my own dog without access to the decoys is because we've, he's gone past that. Mm. Right. So like he'll bite me, but there's a lot of conflict now because he's a big boy. Now he's like, he's three years old. He's mature. Our relationship is what it is. 
And I think he's afraid of fucking that up. So he doesn't bite me the way that he would bite anybody else. It mm. used to be bit me exactly the same, right? He didn't give a shit, right? Like he would bite me the same way he'd bite you, he'd bite anybody else. But in the last probably six months, as he's become really more serious and he's not like a street sweeper, he's still a sport dog, right? But he's grown up and he's a more adult. He doesn't want to do the things to me that he's willing and yeah, wants to Randy's do to the same. other people. He won't, he won't hurt me the way he likes hurting you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, I put a leg sleeve on a couple of days ago and I was just – him and I were out in the in the shed playing and he bites it. Yeah, they play funsies. Yeah, he plays funsies and he enjoys it, but he's kind of looking at it like, oh, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Like, this feels wrong. Yeah. Where when he's with you, it's like, oh, I really want to yeah, do fuck this. You, you know? Yeah, I want to I want to taste your shit. I want to get you. Yeah, I want to get you. Yeah, yeah. whereas it's like, hey – you're we're we're, a, we're a partnership. We're a coaching team here, not a, you know. Yeah, and so maybe the dog's intention is like, hey, if I give this the intensity that I would like to, you, I am going to change the nature of our relationship and I don't want to do that. That's right. Right? And so- And nor should you. No, exactly, right? But, but I'm thinking from his point of view. That's yeah. what he's probably thinking. Like, hey, if I really get serious and, and bite you the way that I know that I can, when we get off this meal and- or like when you take off that suit, when you take off that jacket, our relationship's going to be different and I don't want to be in that position. You know what I, <laughs> I literally liken it to, you know, in it's in one of the Avengers, it's in the Age of Ultron yep. where they're trying to pick up Thor's hammer. Yep. And I love they're that. making jokes about it. And then Captain America goes to pick it up and it moves a little bit and then pretends he can't pick it up. And then you find out later, spoiler alert, yep. you find out later in Endgame that he didn't do it because he didn't want to hurt Thor's feelings. Yep. And it's kind of like, it, I kind of make <laughs> it be the same. And then it's like, the dog's like, hey, I have the capacity to fuck you up. Like, because I've learned that on mm. other people. Like the, because of our relationship, I don't think I'm allowed to do that, nor do I want to. That is an amazing observation. And I've often thought about this throughout the years of owning working dogs and work and having a lot of dogs that have got the potential to do it. Like there was a time where Randy's ear was hurting and um, I know he was in a lot of pain because he gets these yeasty things in the ears. A lot of shepherds do. Mm -hmm. So he hates his ears being touched by me, but he'll tolerate it. And so there's sometimes where I know that he's in pain, he'll growl at me and I, I know he's exercising the control. most incredible amount of control because if it was anybody else, he'd bite them, mm. you know, but he's looking at me and he's staring me right in the eye while he's doing it. And people would say to me, oh, isn't that aggression? No, I'm, that's fucking control. Yeah. You know, that's that dog saying, I trust you implicitly. You know, I know that we're a partnership, we're a team. This hurts like hell because I have to massage his ears and everything and he hates it, like fucking yeah. hates it. And I love him for it. I really admire him. And all the other dogs, like even Harley would do the same sort of thing. You know, in those moments where things are – and, I mean, people have experienced it too with, with just their pet dogs where the dog is saying, anybody else I wouldn't tolerate this from, but because it's you, I trust you and I'm going to let it slide. I think that trust in your dog's relationship is like it's the most beautiful thing mm. and I go out of my way to not damage that. I think yeah. one of – I've spoken about it Well, you it build it. That's what your coach – that's what your role as a master coach is. That's is, it. Is building great relationships with yeah. your dog. And, like, especially, you know, for the real world and in competition as well is mm. – you relying on the dog trusting you like, hey, this will go the way I've said it will. Yeah. Right. And it's like to the minute details of 
you know, like I'm carrying the ball when I'm not. Mm. The dog trusting that you will reinforce it, even though you know you're not going to. Yep. Down to the bigger picture things where you can present on the sporting field, like a really hard scenario. And you say to the dog, you can get through this. We've got through this in the past. Yep. Like you're telling him, I told you to bite. Therefore, it's going to be possible for you to do it. Like you can get through this. And you got to, the dog's got to trust you. Mm. But- you know, like an example I see like in normal, like not in normal dogs, in pet dogs and stuff like that away from the bite work is like when I'm doing sort of aggression behavior rehab sort of stuff, uh, and this is one of the reasons I love Valerie so much, is I have her there often and she's in the back of my car in her crate and the door's open, like the back van is open, her crate door is open and I have my marker board on the street, right? And where I'm working this dog... I can call her out of the marker board, out of the van and tell her to go to the marker board mm. and she'll go to that spot and she know that's why I have the marker board there so she knows exactly where to go to. Yep. And then I can start working proximity with her to the other dog. And, mate, I've had dogs that I thought were – like I overstepped the mark. We're walking past her and then right at the last second just turn and go ballistic like trying to kill her. And she will not move, mate. She won't move a muscle. She just sits there and like with it, with a really truly aggressive dog going ballisting at her from six inches away, she just she knows to not even make eye contact with it. She just lays there and trusts that I'm going to control that situation. I keep thinking – When you're talking about things like that, and I've had similar experiences with dogs, it's that film clip with Forrest Gump where he says, why did you- Because you told me to. Because you told me to, Drill Sergeant. And I love, I absolutely, that's my favorite clip. Like I show it to every group that we have in NDTF. Like I get them to watch that whole sequence. I said, don't just laugh at it. Like look at the importance of what's going on there. Like he is doing what he was trained to do and what he was told to do because he believed that that was the right thing that he needed to do for the drill sergeant. So Valerie will hold this down on the marker board while another dog goes fucking ballistic at her, trying to kill her. So long as I'm in control of that leash, she'll hold it there. And then usually, you know, I have to deal with that dog and then I say, okay, we overstep, go back in the car and she happily gets up and goes and runs away. And I can then move the dog or the marker board and I can change distance, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. The second I hand that leash to the owner, she's like, fuck all this. (laughs) (laughs) Goes and gets in the car. Because it's clear, she's like, I trust him. I don't know you. I don't know your leash handling skills. Yeah. Like we have a history. She's of, not the drill sergeant. Yeah. Mm. So she, you can see in her mind, she's like, no, we have a history of, I, I help him out in this situation. I always mm. spoil a rotten afterwards. Yep. So it's in her interest to do it, but he's never, I, he has never let me get hurt. I have never, like he's never dropped the leash. Mm. I've never seen him mishandle the dog. I've um, never got nailed by the dog. There's yep. no risk of that. Yep. Right. Which, but with you. The second I hand the leash over, she's like, <laughs> fuck you. And yep. she gets out and I can be yelling at her. Hey, get back on that. She's like, nah, fuck all that. And yep. it gets in the car. Cause she's like, no, nah, I don't trust that person. Good. Like, yeah. Oh man. And I wouldn't, Perfect. I wouldn't put her in a position to yeah. do that. Right. Then, we have like you know then i i do close the gate and that other dog walks past the the closed crate like and you know my kennels are fucking wrapped i couldn't get into those kennels there's no way so she's totally safe and she'll she'll accept that mm. right but i think that's trust right that's absolutely. Her, like absolutely like i, I can't think and of intelligence better, yeah not just not just trust intelligence as well yeah you know because there's a degree of trust that comes into it but you have to look at the intelligence factor that the dog can work that out yeah like look at you and saying yeah my advantage lies with you in every aspect not just because you're putting food in my bowl yeah but because you keep me safe you know i can count on you you're reliable you're predictable yeah where with this other person there's just like too many a, variables too many variables yeah yeah mm. what a discussion yeah that really heated up towards the end yeah for that was a, good for that was a couple good. of guys that looked at each other an hour and a half and said oh, what are we gonna talk about <laughs>
<laughs> that was good. No, it was. It was a. Uh, and what I was really enjoying about that conversation was how much mathematics is actually going through your mind about what you're doing there. Like, I like these conversations with you because you know you and I have conversations in the kitchen while we're having a coffee and doing a little bit of preamble about what we're talking about. But it's like when we come in here, all of a sudden you unveil this <laughs> whole aspect of where you're thinking about things. And it's nice. It's really good to see, you know, how much weight you're investing in it because yeah, I'm enjoying it. you're not just developing a, a dog and bone show for people on, on your course. Like you're actually progressively still thinking about what next. Yeah. Like I say, one of the things that I really enjoy is, paying really close attention to the phenomenal dog trainers, like the world-class dog trainers mm. that I have access to through the internet and also yeah. that are friends and whatever, and really coming to understand why the things that they do intuitively work. Yeah. And I like my skill set is then in understanding that and breaking it down and putting it into a language that most people can understand. And the good thing about it is, is that you're not just robotically just doing – and I don't mean this disrespectfully because, you know, they are masters in their fields about their own things. But I would say and I would I would like to think that they have equally put in a lot of investment in their own aspect to think about why it's happening and what they're doing. Because it is important that this is an evolution. It's not just follow the bouncing ball. Mm. You know, we have to evolve in this aspect of thinking further along it because there are so many variables and the pathway to A to B is not so easy. It's mm. it's not A to B, it's A to T. Yeah. And there's so many times where you derail and you've got to think, uh-uh, it's not working. I've got to get back on track. So you'll go A, B, but B is derailing and so is C and so is D. The important thing is to get to a point in your career and your life and have good mentors and second sets of eyes and so forth where people can say to you, that's not right. It doesn't even look right. We need to backtrack a little, get back on that trajectory where we were finding the success pathway, don't focus on A to B. Just focus on keeping the trajectory right. And it doesn't matter what the letter is at the end of it. What matters is, is that you and that dog forge that understanding and that relationship that when you do actually get there, that's what it all boiled down to. Yeah. And then don't worry about the things that didn't go right. Learn from all that because that forms your education parcel when you get actually get to the end of it. Yeah. I was talking to somebody recently about developing skills in dog training and that. Mm. And when you look, especially now, since the whole dog training industry is going online, yeah, the amount of content that's out there is unbelievable, right? There's too much to digest. And when you look at the really good producers of it, say you look at, say, Michael Ellis, Ivan, but like just to use the, the, golden the trifecta, yeah. right? the golden triangle. Of, in, in our interests. I mean, there you know, there are course, other yeah. educators in different things. Like we're talking about the working dog aspect because some people have said to me before, but you're not acknowledging like agility or fly ball or yeah, disc and stuff like that. Sphere. That's right. It's outside our interest, but we're not disrespecting those people because we had Sarah Bruski on the show and people like that yeah. who is incredible and her own right and there are myriads of other people yeah. in different things so we're just talking about the working dog aspect yeah. when you look at those guys i think it's really important to watch them mm. right like that video of barton thor like uh, if that's got a million hits on youtube i'm a hundred thousand of them yeah i know right? but i think what i think is really important when you really want to get to beyond just the surface level understanding is i don't think any one of the people who put out good content and not just them but everybody in the industry nobody intentionally leaves anything out right? Mm. Everybody puts it all there on the table because they want you to understand. What I like to really try and do is understand what they did leave out, right? Because 
usually, and this is my theory. You think people don't intentionally leave things No, out? but like when they're teaching something, like not like they might leave out whole pieces, but when they're as showing As long as they talk about it, it doesn't matter that they didn't show it as long as they so mention this, it. So it's really important to understand the stuff that they talk about, but mm. then I think it's really important to understand what they don't talk about because that to them is happening naturally and maybe is the glue that holds the whole thing together and they mm. don't understand how important it is. But right? we also had that conversation too about how you can – because you're at a certain level of understanding and intelligence, to you, it doesn't matter. But to a novice, it really does matter. Yeah. But sometimes because your legs are part in your understanding of something, like something that you think is easy and it's, it's elementary, like it, it doesn't really form the picture of your, your current knowledge mm-hmm. of it, there was still a trajectory to get there. And sometimes you actually got to think to the novice, the tightening of the screw really does matter. And mm. you've got to actually show them, you know, even how to put the screw in because they just don't understand that step. And that's the whole missing link in everything. Yeah. But I think it can be really important to sort of look and say like things that you see people doing that they don't even know how as important as it is. So mm. it's not even a teaching point. Like it's not one of the board points I mean. on the board. It's yeah. like, and it's like he carries it in his left hand rather than his right. Like just little shit. Like here's a stupid example from myself. The way I hold a clicker is important, mm. right? Like, and people, like, it's such a stupidly semantic thing, but the way I hold the clicker has a lot of function. It's yep. not by accident, right? And it took me a long time to realize that that was something I had to teach people how to do. Yeah. Because you just go, I just hold a clicker, right? Like, how hard is it? You just hold it in your hand. Well, when you're also controlling an e-collar and you're holding a leash and you may be, like, going to use your whistle. like And what the dog's observing at the same time. Exactly. The way, it's all markers. Dog, it's actually very important how you hold a clicker. Yeah. And it took me, a, like, literally years yep. to realize that that was a component that I had to teach. Mm. That that was a part of it that people needed to do in a particular way. One thing and, people got to understand, if your dog's looking at you, he's learning. Yeah. Mm. But so I even felt like an idiot when I'd say to people, actually – you need to use this type of clicker to, mm. to do what I'm doing here. You need to use this particular type of clicker and you need to use it in this way. You have to click it with your little finger mm. and people, people were like, what? What, what, is, what is this sorcery? You, you over Pat Stewart, you bloody you, you overbearing control freak. That's what it is. You overbearing control freak. Like why does the lanyard has to go a particular way? Like mm. it has to fall in a particular direction. You have to wear have it like to, Spider-Man. Yeah. And you mm. have to either be able to click it with your little finger or the, the other one, the stupid finger that doesn't do anything. What's yeah. that one called? The ring finger. Ring finger, right? Mm. You you either have you have to be able to click with those two, um, and it has to sit within your hand like this, right? And you can't use them too long. That's why I go through them pretty quick, right? Because the the coil gets expanded, and once it's expanded, it won't fall back into your hand the right way. And it seems like that's such a ridiculous overbearing control freak thing to demand people hold a clicker in a particular way. And so I avoided that for a really long time. I just was like, hold the clicker however you want. Right. Yep. And I would even say like, uh, this is how I do it if you really want it. But now I'm like, no, you need to do it like this mm. because that's, I didn't know until recently. That's a really important piece. Hence right? my rant about people in their food yeah. pouches, the way they touch them and yeah. when they touch them. Yeah. But so like, imagine you're layering the pressure over the unforced force fetch, mm. right? So you're using the the slip lead in your left hand and in your right hand, you're going to, and maybe you're layering the e-collar over the top of that. So in your right hand, you're going to have your finger kick, the actual pipe itself and the clicker. Yeah. Right. That's a lot to control. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the timing in this one is where it matters. Right. So that's mm. why I was like, it can be totally done. And I'd watch people's kind of fumbling with it mm. before I was like, oh, it has to be done in a particular way. It's and, like playing frets on a guitar or but, playing piano. But so I only came to that realization <laughs> a few months ago. And yep. so there's shit tons of 
the content of me out there explaining how to do this particular exercise, mm. but I do not at any point explain how you should hold the clicker in it because I didn't know how important that was. You bastard, keeping right? back all that, That's it, but that I juicy information. In that your- time, I had no idea how important that was. And now mm. I do know. So now when I do it, I'm like, oh, you have to hold it like this. If you want to be able to do it like this, you have to be able to hold it like this, right? Yeah. And so it's crazy. Like, So that's why I say when I look at the content people have, I try and find like, what did you leave out? Not by accident, but because it's a linchpin piece that was so fundamental to what you do, you didn't mm. even think it was worthwhile explaining. Right. Fascinating. Um, yeah. Well, that's, that's how I spend my quarantine days when I'm not, when I'm not in sword fights with four year olds. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. looking at that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's wrap it up. Yeah. Going definitely. Yeah. That was great. It was, right. it was a good conversation. I enjoy all of them. I mean, I always get something out of it, but that was particularly fascinating. What's your favorite episode of the podcast? Mine? Hmm. Roger Branty's. Yeah. Still. 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 Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. It's not just because I revere him so much. It's just, he changed my approach. Yeah. And that's what I love. There's favorite elements in different podcasts that we've done. You know, it's like Steve Crowder's changed my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I love it when people can change my mind. When I've been th- on a thinking trajectory for a long period of time and then someone comes up and produces new evidence or something like that and says, no, this is the actual science behind it or this is the benefit that you're going to achieve by it. For me, that is just the whole purpose of doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. It is just marvelous. And it's part of the joy of being alive mm-hmm. is being able to experience that no matter what age bracket you're sitting in, if you can relish that moment, I think that you're really celebrating some of the basic and the most fundamental victories in life. Mm. So for me, that's it. Yeah. Cool. Mm. Nice. All right. I'm going to wrap it up before we do. Yeah. I know we talk about Patreon before we do the wrap up, but we're in trying times and there are still people that have contacted me and they've said, we're in trying times. I know it, but I know you and Pat are as well. And we love what you're doing and you're being a fantastic voice for us. <laughs> Seriously, that shit could make me cry because yeah. people are still fucking, you know, saying I'm not going to stop. I'm going to increase the amount or something like that. Oh, I can't thank you enough. I know it sounds like I'm just parrot fashion putting this out there, but really, I mean, during this time, the fact that people are still throwing support behind us, you guys are exceptionally wonderful. It's times of a crisis that you really know what people's medal is about. So this is directly from the heart, from the core of my heart. I'm really saying to you guys, thank you so much. It is hard to convey how appreciative we are of that Patreon stuff without sounding kind of patronizing. I know. And that's the, that's the thing I've never really want. I'd never wanted people just to think, Oh, you know, I'm just trying to fish you in service. Yeah, yeah. 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 It is really the heart and soul of keeping this going. Yeah, it really is. And it's, absolutely amazing the amount of people who are getting behind us and not only maintaining patreon but also increasing it and i've just thought how good is this yeah you know you're going through your own crisis but you're still behind us and i respect you no matter what so whether you can or you can't or you you do or you don't yeah i think i I never want anybody to put themselves absolutely a a position that they shouldn't right so like people need to withdraw their support because they've got no money then of course hell do it don't of course. Don't feel bad about yeah. that. That Go ahead and do what you need to do. Got to yep. look after yourself. Yep. And and we totally are behind you. Yep. But in line with that, then our intent is to keep fucking good content coming into that Patreon stuff, yep. right? And like- uh, We want to go as long as we can. Yeah. Yep. Keep good content coming in that you find valuable. Yep. All right. I'm really wrapping it up now. Cool.
That's it for yep. another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, jump into Patreon like we just spoke about. Thank you so much to everybody that's involved in there. And uh, if you want to rep some cool merch, jump into Teespring and you can get yourself some Canine Paradigm merch there. Are Teespring still active? They probably are, right? Yeah, yeah, they are because they have sent me out some items saying that they're doing promotional. Okay, yeah, yeah. cool. So jump onto Teespring. They yeah. can still produce cool merch. Mm. Uh, and if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to post within the discussion group. Group source some of that information. Mm. Otherwise, you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Glenn, music, sir.